Back in the fall, uh, Dr. Beal asked me to preach, and I preached a message on biblical lament. Um, we talked through the process of lament being the fact that we complain, and we request, and ultimately we end up in trust. We primarily concentrated that message on when you're going through difficulty, things that just didn't go the way you thought they should go. Today I want to go back to a message on lament, but today we're going to concentrate on the fact that you'll lament when you sin. When you've made the choices that have broken God's heart. And now this lament comes because you realize exactly what you've done or don't realize it yet, but others do. So I want us to take our Bibles and turn to the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations. It's appropriate that the book is named that because it is a full book of lament. That's what it is. By the way, a little side note about the message in the fall. I told you, I think the day I preached, that my daughter had just had to turn back in a foster child that she thought would be her forever baby. Unbeknownst to us at the time, there was another little baby born right around that same time. Her name is Lexi. And she will be coming to what we believe will be her forever home with my daughter on Wednesday, tomorrow. You know, God knows what he's doing, paving the way for things. Um, It didn't happen immediately, but God was orchestrating and working, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. Probably, if you were to be asked to quote a passage from the book of Lamentations, the chances are it's going to be Lamentations 3, 22. And following, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. Now, those verses are powerful standing alone. They're wonderful text. And they're true about our God, regardless of the rest of the context. I'm not ignoring the rest of the context. But when you understand the rest of the context, these verses take on a whole different meaning. It's interesting to me. Most of the time, when you see these verses on a poster, on a picture, on a screensaver, whatever it may be, as a general rule, you'll find a little quiet stream, maybe a cabin with a beautiful lake, or a sunset or sunrise type, just a serene type. That is not at all what Jeremiah was looking at. Jeremiah was looking at a war-torn city. Excuse my frankness, but he was looking at mutilated bodies left behind from the utter destruction of a people that claimed to be God's people that thumbed their nose at God and almost dared God to do something about it. And so God did eventually. Aren't you glad that God is long-suffering and patient with us? What a wonderful characteristic. But don't mistake that long-suffering that he will never do anything. Because he does deal with Israel. Lamentations is a song. It's a, it's a poem. Some would call it a dirge. It's a book that describes the devastation of a people bent on doing their own things. 
Jeremiah, the author, weeps through these verses. He, he weeps in other texts. We know him as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah 9 and verse 1, Oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah had a unique ministry in that God told him, you're going to preach for 50 years and nobody's ever going to listen to you. Go at it. I don't know that I could have done what Jeremiah did. That's exactly what Jeremiah does. And, And at times when he wants to quit, the word of God lit a fire in him and he just couldn't be quiet anymore. From the slime pits to the captivity to over and over, Jeremiah endures the difficulty of God's people because he was tasked to be with them and to continue to warn them. The book of Lamentations consists of a series of five poetic laments, mourning the national disaster of the captivity of the Babylonians. They destroyed the temple, took many of the people into exile. I love what one author says, Lamentation is a memorial to a broken world and a holy God. Yes, this world is broken, but we serve a holy God. The poems or songs of this book are also exhibited in the so-called chiastic form, the crisscross, if you will. As such, chapters 1 and 5 give an over-summary of the book and the disaster. 2 and 4 are more detailed descriptions of what took place. Chapter 3 occupies the central position in these five poems. Another author says, The book of Lamentations confirms that the world, sadly, is full of suffering to sin's presence because of it. A full effect of sin and thus suffering is held back only by God's intercession. True to God, He destroys His people because they refuse to do what He wants them to do. The destruction of the temple came at precisely at the point when the temple, when the religious worship, if you will, became more of a club for the religious elite and less about God and His worship. It became an idol to them, if you will. Hardship reveals idols. I love one person's definition of an idol. He says, what is an idol? Is anything more important to you than God? Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give to, that you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would be hardly worth living. While God valued His people, there is something more important than the preservation of this city. And that was God's righteousness. And God's going to demonstrate that because He will utterly destroy His people and their city. Jeremiah, as he pens these words, uses this song of sorrow to point his heart to what he knows to be true despite what he's currently seeing. And as you, we don't have time to read the entire book today, but as you read the book, you see Jeremiah fluctuating between these. But God, what are you doing? But God, I thought we were your covenant people. But God, what about this? And he keeps pointing himself back to, but I know you're a loving God, and I know you're this, and I know you're that, because what he's staring at right now looks nothing like a loving God. 
By the way, God is not a one characteristic God. He is a perfectly balanced God. Yes, He's holy. Yes, He's righteous. Yes, He's pure. Yes, He's loving. Yes, He's long-suffering. We have a hard time reconciling those. He doesn't. He's God. This book is about pain. Real pain. But yet still hope in God. And you'll see those a couple of times. Jeremiah vividly addresses the extremes of human pain and suffering as really few authors have done in history. These questions arise out of difficulty. Lamentations is an important biblical source for us to express the hard questions that arise out of our times of pain and give biblical answers. But I want to tell you, Lamentations gives no easy answers to the questions. But it helps us meet God in the midst of our suffering and teaches us the language of prayer, of lament. Instead of the book offering us a set of techniques or easy answers or inspiring slogans for for facing pain and grief, Lamentations orients us to God. It sets us right in that. It's a voice of working through grief from A to Z. Literally, the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet is going to be used in these poems. It's an instruction on how and what to pray in the midst of these crushing times. It's a focal point on the faithfulness of God and the affirmation that He alone is our portion. Jeremiah wrestles with anguish yet contrasted with Judah's status as God's covenant people and her present collapse. God, how do all these things mix together? I thought the covenant was unconditional, and yet I'm looking at this utter destruction. Why had it all happened? Had God turned in anger against His people? How was one to deal with this traumatic experience? What interpretation was to be put upon events of such inexpressible horror. It's about suffering. It's compared to portions of Psalms and Isaiah in its deep crying out to God. Now, the first four uh, lamentations um, of the five poems, they exhibit what we would call an acrostic structure with each line beginning with a different Hebrew letter. Working through that. So chapter 1 is 22 verses. Chapter 2 is 22 verses. Chapter 3 is 66 verses and one Hebrew letter for three verses. Chapter 4 is 22 verses and so forth. It includes multiple voices, many scholars believe, expressing the hardships faced in Jerusalem. Some are personified as the daughter of Zion that speaks. In the second poem, the poet cries out to God and declares the destruction of the, bit of the city to be the result of God's destruction on their sin, specifically. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Look, look there with me just quickly as we look at that. Chapter 2 and verse 1. How hath the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in His anger and cast down from heaven unto the earth the beauty of Israel and remembered not his footstool in the day of his anger. 
Again, this is what Jeremiah is currently experiencing and noticing, God, you, you just, you basically wiped out your people. He then cries out to God and declares the destruction of the city as a result of the judgment. In the third poem, the tone changes to one of acceptance and repentance. We see here that God's promises and compassions eventually bring restoration to His people. And the invaders will be cursed eventually. Chapter 3, verses 21 through 33 and 64, 65, and 66 talk about this. However, despite this hope, the next chapter returns to the sorrow. Chapter 4 returns to the sorrow and continues to the end of the book. I've entitled the message, A Book Without a Happy Ending. Because we really don't see a happy ending here. There's hope that there's coming a happy ending, but it's not recorded for us here yet. The fourth poem then acknowledges the trauma experienced by the people. As one author said, as they were stripped of their humanity during the invasion. If you ever studied what the Babylonian Empire did to God's people, it will, it will almost make you sick to your stomach. Matter of fact, other prophets tell us that God tells them eventually, you went too far. The poet again identifies the cause of this suffering as the sinfulness and guilt of Israel's prophets and priests who utterly failed the people. God is just in His judgment against His people, chapter 4 tells us in verses 11 and 13 and 16. And then the fifth and final poem offers a summary of the people's sin and suffering and includes a plea that God restore them. Bring renewal, O Lord. Look at, look at chapter 5 and verse 21. Matter of fact, look back at verse 19. I think it will help you with the context. Thou, O Lord, remainest forever. Thy throne from generation to generation Wherefore dost thou forget us forever and forsake us so long time? Turn thou us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned. Renew our days as of old. But thou hast utterly rejected us. Thou art very wroth with us. It's almost as if Jeremiah is trying to muster up, God, this is who you are, and, and, and Lord, I want you to renew the covenant, but for now, you are so angry with us. And he stops writing. It's an amazing book, really. We don't have time this morning to go through every detail of the book, but let's just walk a little bit chapter by chapter and give some things. I wish we had time to read it all. But chapter 1 opens with how. How did this happen? What, what happened? And this really is a lament for the city. Jeremiah had warned them that this was coming, didn't he? Over and over again, Jeremiah, that was, that was his ministry. We could see that in Jeremiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, Jeremiah 17, 1 through 4, among others, where Jeremiah says, God is going to judge us. We're not going to get away with our sin. When you read the New Testament prophets, 
you find over and over how Israel just basically was blatant with their sin against God. Almost as if (laughs) we're His people, He wouldn't dare. Can I tell you, young people, don't ever get to that point. You're like, well, well, of course not. Of course not. Can I tell you, if you're honest with yourself, you've been closer than you think. And part of the problem sometimes in ministry is that we get the big head and we think we're indispensable. God needs us. He wouldn't dare deal with me the way I'm supposed to be dealt with. Can I tell you, those of us who know better have a higher accountability to our God. God relates her forsaking to adultery and the hurt and shame that comes with that. Five times in chapter 1, he noted that Jerusalem's cries for help after her fall went unanswered. There is none to comfort her. I want you to notice with this. Look at verse 2. She weepeth sore in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. In other words, all the people that you turn to to get your help and comfort, they're no longer there. Look at verse 9. Her filthiness is in her skirts. She remembereth not her last end. Therefore, she came down wonderfully. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy hath magnified himself. Look at verse 16. For these things I weep, mine eye, mine eye runneth down with water, because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. My children are desolate, because the enemy prevailed. Can I tell you something, young people? There would be no more desperate feeling than to cry out to God, and he's silent. The book of Proverbs chapter 1 tells us that there'll come a time when the man keeps rejecting God that he will laugh when your fear cometh. Can you imagine finally coming to God and saying, okay, God, I really goofed up this time, and, and boy, I, I know I've thumbed my nose in your face, but God, I, I really need you, and either silence or God going, <laughs> yeah, right. Like, I, I'm not sure God will do that. Read that text in Proverbs chapter 1. What, what a horrible feeling that must have been. The city had turned from the protective care of her God to pursue foreign alliances and lifeless idols. And now, at the time she needed the help of others most, she found herself alone, destitute, defenseless. And the enemy was wreaking havoc on her. If you've ever studied any places that are war-torn, it'll break your heart. I sat in a meeting in August of this year. I'm on the board of a ministry that works in the Ukraine. And we were able to bring a chaplain who is an, he's an American, but he's been embedded with 
Ukrainian troops almost from the beginning, sharing the gospel, seeing guys saved. He's doing Bible studies, frontline stuff. We sat in that board meeting in shock and tears streaming down our face as the utter atrocities that are taking place in war-torn countries. Jeremiah is observing this. Chapter 2 emphasizes that God is now her enemy and the suffering that accompanies that. It's not just that God has been silent, though He has. Now God is actually her enemy. God's people. The leaders from top to bottom had failed the nation. Jeremiah periodically interrupts the flow to express his own heartbreak. Look at chapter 2 and verse 11. Mine eyes do fail with tears. My bowels are troubled. My liver is poured upon the earth for the destruction of the daughter of my people because the children and the sucklings swoon in the streets of the city. Everything within him is, if you will, convulsing. He cannot grieve enough. Again, I I don't want to be over grotesque today, but can I tell you that Jeremiah is overlooking children who's had their heads bashed out, who's been ripped from their mother's womb and thrown to the side as a garbage heap, limbs and parts of the body strewn all over the city. That is the picture that Jeremiah is writing about. And he says in this verse, I don't even know how to weep anymore. I don't know how to yearn anymore. These are supposed to be God's people. This is supposed to be God's city. And it's important for us to understand again that this destruction is because of sin. They had lived a life of sin. And we talked last time, not all lament is because of sin, but it's certainly appropriate to lament over sin. By the way, it's appropriate to lament over someone else's sin, over my sin, over a country's sin. That's what Jeremiah is doing. He's, he's lamenting over his people and what they had gone through. Jeremiah hadn't made many of these choices. He had stayed faithful to God, yet he's still suffering the difficulty of it. And I tell you, it doesn't take long to look at headlines in our country before we should be lamenting the direction of our country. Chapter 3, obviously, is the most familiar of all the text. And it teaches us several truths about God in the midst of lament. One author says, A speaker claims to have firsthand experience of the suffering inflicted on Israel. Some people debate whether or not Jeremiah wrote the book. I don't think there's any debate at all about it. It's because of God's wrath. His personal experiences adds credibility and authority to the exhortation to hope and trust in God. At many points, the description of the suffering echoes various complaints from the book of Job. All that has happened. The last phrase of verse 21 begins this transition. I didn't read it before. We started in verse 22. But notice what he says in verse 21. This I recall to my mind. Therefore have I hope. Can I tell you, Jeremiah is not saying that he has hope because he's looking at hope. This hope statement is a faith statement. 
because there is absolutely no evidence in front of him at all that there is any hope. Hope. These next few verses really provide the only glimmer of hope in the entire book. They reveal that even in the midst of despair, all hope is not lost. Can we look at these? Just some truths from these verses. But I I want you to remember the context. This is not a a happy-go-lucky, pretty sunset. We're walking together hand-in-hand with people that we love, and everything's going just perfect. And all of a sudden we think, boy, isn't God's mercy new every morning? Great is His faithfulness. That's not what's happening here. You don't have to change all the posters in your room and your screensavers. I'm just telling you, that's, that's not what's really depicted here. So what do we see? Number one, we see God's mercy never ends. It is of the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. This Hebrew word for mercy here is the, is the Hebrew word hesed or chesed. Some people pronounce it that way. It's, it's an impossible word to describe in the English language. It really is. Let me give you one definition that someone gave. gave Merciful kindness, loving kindness, goodness, favor, marvelous kindness, pity. That word is so far-reaching it's hard to define. It speaks of God's character. It is God's covenant love for His people. Therefore, the ultimate hope of God's people is God's ability to keep being God. Jeremiah is not staking his claim on the fact that maybe the people will get right or maybe the Babylonians will relent on this. No, his claim is God's going to keep being God. Matter of fact, many times this particular phrase is translated steadfast love. His steadfast love. There is no love like His steadfast love. And Jeremiah just clings to it. I know what someone else said. God offered a fresh supply of loyal love every day to His covenant people. Much like the man in the wilderness, supply could not be exhausted. This truth caused Jeremiah to call out in praise, Great is your faithfulness! He was taken back by the limitless supply of God's grace offered to him. Because of this, Jeremiah resolved to wait for God to act, bringing about restoration and blessing. He could trust God despite his circumstances because he now understood how inexhaustible was God's supply of loyal love. It would be some 70 years before God's people would begin to migrate back to this place. But it would be long after that before the temple foundation would be laid, before Nehemiah and Ezra showed up. Jeremiah only saw this by faith. God's mercy never ends. Young people, please listen to me very carefully. Just because we know that 
doesn't it mean we take advantage of it? That's exactly part of Israel's problem. But it will come to an end. God will not keep putting up with our blatant sin. Number two, waiting is not a waste. Waiting is not a waste. The Lord is my portion, saith my Lord. Therefore, I hope in Him, not because I know it's going to happen tomorrow, but, but I hope in Him. It's going to come. To wait on the Lord means to place your hope in Him, to trust that God is the one who can deliver you. The third truth from this text I think we can see is that the final word has not been spoken. And again, Jeremiah made that statement by faith. God, I know what your word said. I know that you are a covenant-keeping God. And no matter what we have done, you're not going to ultimately forsake your people. Again, I want to remind you, Jeremiah is not saying that because all the evidence around him points to it. He's saying it because he's reminding himself what he knows in his head, but that's not what he's feeling currently. That's what lament does. Remember, we talked about that in the fall. I have this complaint against God. I have a request, God. This is what I want you to do. But God, regardless of what you do, I will trust you. I can't see it, but I'm going to trust you. And then fourth... God is always good. God is always good. Verse 25, the Lord is good unto them that wait for him to the soul that seeketh him. Now, young people, based on what I've described to you this morning, does it look like God is good? Does it look like that? It looks like, hear me out, it looks like God is an angry God that is just done with it and he's just wiped people out. That's what it looks like. And he is angry with his people. But even in that anger, it is based in a goodness for what he wants to see done in their lives. By the way, out of this group of people come some pretty amazing people, isn't it? You realize that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, these boys come out of this kind of destruction when the Babylonians conquered them. God wasn't done. He has always and will always have a remnant. And you might feel like you're all alone, but you're not. And even if you were, you have God. (laughs) You have God. Chapters 4 and 5 are much of the same as we've already laid out. And Jeremiah, of course, ends the book saying repentance would bring God. But since the nation has not returned to God, God's forsaken them, it appears. They have forsaken God for sure. He is wroth with them. God is angry, but he had not totally forsaken them. But it sure looked that way from where Jeremiah was standing. 
Some authors believe that that means the book of, Jer- uh, the book of Lamentation ends on a note of hope. <laughs> it's a cloudy one if it is. <laughs> In spite of severe suffering because of her sin, Judah had not been abandoned as a nation. God was still sovereign. His covenant with Israel was still operative despite her obedience. I'm sorry, her disobedience. The hope for the nation was that if she would call on God and confess her sin, He would protect her during her captivity and would ultimately restore her as a nation to covenant blessing. God desperately wants us to run to Him in every moment of life. In this case, it was sin. When we've sinned and when God lovingly brings down the chastening hand, God wants us to run to Him. There does reach a point in which God will allow us to have what we so desperately claim to want. And then sit with an apparent silent ear as we weep what we have sown. He's not actually forsaken us, but He's given us a little taste of what we thought we wanted. My teenage years, I struggled spiritually um, in a variety of ways. And... To my shame, I remember specifically one time standing in my bedroom, pointing my finger to God and saying, you leave me alone. And it was almost as if God said, okay. Now I can tell you, he didn't totally leave me alone, but boy, he pulled back. And what I thought was tough got worse. Within just a few moments, a few days of this event, I was playing in a soccer game in which a a dirty team, a guy in his soccer cleats had unscrewed a regular one and screwed in a steel cleat, slid across my knee and sliced it open and shattered the outside of my knee. My dream was to play professional soccer. Now, at that age, you don't realize that's probably not going to (laughs) happen. But that was my dream anyway, right? Um, I did get offered a semi-pro contract. I was, we were, we were having a pretty good season considering the Christian school we were in. Um, I didn't even totally understand how bad it had been. I knew my leg was cut open. I pulled a knee pad over it and kept playing until. The blood was squirting out my shoes pretty bad, and my coach said, "Um, you're done playing today. (laughs) Went to the doctor, and the doctor said, to be honest with you, that knee will probably never be the same. I doubt you'll run again. Within just, I don't even remember the timeline now, but within just a little while, I was in a pretty serious car accident. My fault. It was raining in Florida. I touched the brakes of the car. They didn't work. (laughs) I was driving an old Chrysler LeBaron. You guys don't know this, but they were solid steel, and they were a tank. 
some of the older faculty will appreciate that. It had a 444 barrel in it, which wasn't good for me either, okay? <laughs> wasn't good for the gas mileage either, but it was sure enough fun to punch it from time to time. I wasn't necessarily speeding that day, but I hit the, I hit the guy so, so hard in the rear, and it broke his bucket seat. I mean, it just tore the car to pieces. My car, you couldn't even tell, was in a wreck. I mean, it just had a solid steel bumper. But I was charged with reckless driving. So on the way home, I'm thinking, by the way, I'm not yet recognizing that God has done exactly what I asked him to do and pull back. On the way home, I'm thinking, i got to figure out what I'm going to tell my dad. The truth was not an option, unfortunately. So I opened the front door, and my dad said, don't open your mouth. I already know. I'm like, well, that's not good. The guy I hit had already called my dad. When I went to the court that day, it wasn't too long later, my dad dropped me at the front door. And I said, you're not coming in with me? Nope, it's not my ticket. And I'm like, I don't even know what I'm doing. Fine, figure it out. I was like, okay. I walk in a courtroom for the first time and the guy says, how do you plead? And I thought, do I have an option? Because... I hit this guy in the back end. I don't think there's a real option, you know. Guilty, they do all this. You know, I go pay money out of my pocket. My dad didn't pay one dime in the fine. By the way, today I'm grateful for that because that's been a really long time ago. I won't tell you how long, (laughs) and I hadn't forgotten it. And my dad said that to me. You're not going to forget this day. Thank you. (laughs) Young people... As my life began to spiral out of control, I seriously contemplated suicide. And I remember when I said, basically, what is going on? I'm like, it had never occurred to me what God was doing. And the Holy Spirit said, you wanted to be left alone. How's it going, William? Can I tell you today, I am so grateful that God didn't totally walk away. But I'm also just as grateful that he backed away. And at the time, it didn't look good. By the way, my knee did eventually heal. Um, However, I missed the faculty, staff, student soccer game that year, which I hated with a passion because my coach scored about five goals on guys. And... uh, I really wanted to be on him is what I wanted to be. And he would typically dribble by me with a soccer ball and laugh at me, which was such a godly response at the time. (laughs) He is still God. And he won't forget his own. The young people, he loves you enough to get your attention. I know you're sitting in a Bible college. But can I tell you that if you're playing with God, he might just back off and give you exactly what you think you want. And in the process, devastation will ensue. Can I tell you, Israel never got the temple back like it was. It was a shell of its former self. They never got it back right that way. 
I had this already in my message. Brother Reem mentioned this last week. William Cooper, in what some believe was the final hymn that he wrote. Brother Reem quoted this, but I want to quote it again in, in light of Lamentations. God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. You faithful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. Do you need to repent this morning? Can I tell you that God will lovingly nudge you towards repentance. And if you don't respond, he will get stronger. And he would prefer, based on his word, he would prefer us respond to the gentle nudging instead of the worst case scenario. But he loves you enough and he's righteous enough that he will get to the worst case scenario if you thumb your nose at him. His mercies are new every morning and great is his faithfulness. But we should never take advantage of it. Father, thank you for your love. Oh, how we desperately need you. How we need this reminder from the book of Lamentations. May our heart repent with those gentle nudging until you, so that you don't have to get to the more difficult things. Be with these precious students here. And may they recognize who you are and repent and run to you in that incredible, steadfast covenant love that you want to give them. In your name we pray.